You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. I'm so pumped about this episode. We're gonna be talking about the connection between our metabolism and our sexual health, our metabolism and our fertility. And you're gonna find out how surprising environmental chemicals are impacting our metabolic health, literally influencing things like our insulin sensitivity. And most people have no idea about these things. We're gonna go through some of the latest science. And as mentioned, we're even going to be talking about this connection between our metabolic health and our fertility. But one of the surprising things that our special guest sent over to me, and this is a paper, this was published in the journal Diabetes Care. The title of the paper is Fetuses of Obese Mothers Develop Insulin Resistance in Utero. These issues, our metabolic health is literally affecting children in the womb in some of the most detrimental ways. And again, the public at large does not know about this and does not understand the science. And so today we're really gonna break this stuff down to make it make sense. But we're really gonna look at the most empowering portions of this because there's so much that we can do, but we've got to be aware of these issues and the impact that they're having on our bodies and also on our children. Also, again, on our own fertility and what's going on with our environment. What are the upgrades that we can make so that we can have healthier genetic expression and just to be more resilient and healthy in a world that in many ways can be very abnormal. So really, really excited about this episode today. Now, our guest today is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. And Stanford is actually a hub that's really done some fascinating research into coffee and caffeine. Stanford University recently deduced that caffeine and coffee is able to defend our bodies against age-related inflammation. The research revealed that light to moderate coffee drinkers live longer and more healthfully thanks in part to the protection that caffeine provides by suppressing genes related to inflammation. That's incredibly powerful. Another study, and this was published in the journal Practical Neurology, details how regularly drinking coffee has been shown to help to prevent cognitive decline and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So we've got these defenses against age-related degradation and inflammation from our body in total, but also specifically from our brain. Now, what if we take this a step further, which is what I did today and what I do every day and combine high-quality organic coffee with the tried-and-true, peer-reviewed benefits of medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane. Lion's mane, in a study published in Biomedical Research, test subjects with a variety of health complaints, including anxiety and poor sleep quality, were given lion's mane or a placebo for four weeks. The participants who utilize the lion's mane medicinal mushroom significantly reduced their levels of anxiety and general irritation than those in the placebo group, right? Lion's mane has also been noted by researchers at the University of Malaya to help the brain to recover from traumatic brain injuries, all right? It has these neuroprotective benefits as well. And I get my organic coffee infused with lion's mane and chaga from Four Sigmatic. They are the originators 
and they are the best to do it. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. You get 10% off their incredible Lion's Mane coffee blend. And also my youngest son, Brayden, every morning when I'm making my coffee, I make him the Rishi Hot Cacao from Four Sigmatic as well. All right, so they got some amazing, amazing elixirs, hot cocos, organic coffees, and so much more. You get 10% off. You get 10% off their entire store. Just go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled The Model Health Show by Sister Suffragette. I really enjoyed this show. It's packed with great info and the format is engaging and easy to understand. Love how the show pulls expertise from all corners and is very inclusive of varying perspectives. Awesome. Such a great review. Thank you so much for sharing your voice over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that immensely. And if you have to do so, pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the Model Health Show. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Casey Means, MD, and she's the chief medical officer and co-founder of the metabolic health company Levels and associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. She also guest lectures at her alma mater, Stanford University. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tools that can facilitate deep understanding of our bodies and inform personalized and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. Dr. Casey Means has been featured everywhere from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to Men's Health, Forbes, Business Insider, Entrepreneur Magazine, the journal Metabolism, and so much more. And yes, this is another powerhouse episode, absolutely filled to the brim with insights. So let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Dr. Casey Means. Dr. Casey Means, welcome back to the Model Health Show. It's so good to see you, Sean. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you as well. We got to hang out the other day, have some, have some deliciousness together. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, just being able to sit with people, quote, break bread, hang out. It's just one of the best parts of life, really. It is so special, such a treat. Of course, we did not actually break bread because right. yes, there it was, were it was a gluten -free glucose menu. monitors involved. But <laughs> yes, the proverbial bread was broken and it was just wonderful to, uh, yeah, talk about some of our dreams for the future and the, you know, the impact we're trying to have on bringing good health to people. It's always exciting to, to hear what you're working on and very inspiring. Ah, uh, come on. Well, your, your mission really inspired me as well because the bigness of it, first of all, the audacity, and also the fact that you're really doing something about it. And this is why I'm so grateful to have you back today because there's a really a hidden contributor to our nation's obesity epidemic and really our struggle with body fat, period. And it's something called obesogens. So can you talk about that? Absolutely. So this might be a word that people haven't heard before, obesogens. And what this means, this is a word that is a type of endocrine disrupting chemical that we now know directly is causatively related to obesity and fat storage. So it used to be that we had a bit more of a correlational link between these chemicals that in our air, 
our water, our food, our personal care products. And what we're seeing with the obesity crisis, we know that some of them have endocrine disrupting properties. But a new paper that came out a couple months ago, one of the authors was one of the level's advisors, Dr. Rob Lustig, who's an incredible researcher out of UCSF. He's been on the Model Health Show. He's been on the Model Health Show. We'll put that episode in the show notes. He is incredible, uh, a force to be reckoned with. Um, But what they showed in this paper was that these chemicals we now know are actually driving several pathways in the body that directly lead to fat storage. And so uh, Dr. Lustig actually estimates that 15% of obesity is likely being contributed to by these obesogens. So that is not an insignificant number. And I think the average person is not thinking about how chemicals are affecting our metabolic crisis. We've got 88% of American adults with metabolic dysfunction. And of course, we're thinking a lot about food and sedentary behavior. Some of us have made the link between sleep and stress and metabolic disease. But, But then it's like chemicals? Like what? How is this related? But what they showed in this paper and what they broke down was two things. First, they really highlighted all the different categories of things that can be obesogen. So some examples, we're talking about additives in our food, all the different chemicals in our plastic. So even if plastic is BPA-free, there are still chemicals in plastics that can be obesogens, thermal receipts, the sprays that are put on our furniture and our mattresses, things like flame retardants. We're talking about our personal care products, so things like shampoo, deodorant, lotion, conditioner, fragrances that are added to our products in our laundry detergent and our household cleaners. It's it's all across the board. It's in our water. It's things like air pollution from car exhaust, very unavoidable. And these are largely like fairly unregulated industrial chemicals. So you can imagine a company's out there trying to figure out how to preserve their food or how to have a, a, a mattress that has flame retardant on it or a child's toy or an electronic that has flame retardant characteristics to it. And they are coming up with chemicals that they're putting in their products that are largely unregulated. And now there are hundreds of those that have been created over the last 50 to 100 years that are going into our cells, causing dysfunction and making us fat, which we now know, which is why they're called obesogens. And there are several ways they're doing this. It's not just the endocrine disrupting element. So when we talk about an endocrine disrupting chemical, we're talking about how a chemical could maybe go in and actually like bind to a hormone receptor and change its function. So maybe activate or block the estrogen receptor or something like that, almost act like a chemical. That's what something like BPA can do. But there's lots of other things it can do. It can hurt the microbiome, which we of course know has a direct link to metabolism. It can also affect genetic pathways. So the sirtuin pathways, which we know are involved with longevity, it affects those. It has epigenetic changes. And we're now learning that these obesogens can actually go into our germ cells, which are our sperm and egg, the cells that are actually going to go on to make an embryo and cause epigenetic and genetic changes in our germ cells, meaning that the effects of these chemicals are heritable into the next generation. So it's it can feel like a monumental thing to like, well, what do we do? Like, how do we how do we live if it's in our food, water, air and all our products? But I think awareness is the first step. Yes, always. It's the first domino. We really, just hearing what you just shared, we're stacking conditions against ourselves. We don't really realize it. You know, obviously, nutrition has been a big part of the conversation recently. Thank goodness, finally, 
and sleep wellness, stress, movement, like you mentioned. But this is another ingredient that's leading to this outpicturing. If we take a look around our society, you mentioned 88% of our nation's citizens are metabolically unhealthy. It's bananas. I read something from the Environmental Working Group that the average woman puts 168 synthetic chemicals on her body from personal care products and household products, things like that, every single day, every day. And most of them, as you mentioned, are largely unregulated. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, you know, that's before you even exit your bathroom, right? This is like before 8 a.m. that you're doing that, just coating your body in these things. Then you walk into your kitchen and you pick up food and it's covered in pesticides. And pesticides are another key class of obesogens. And even if you're buying organic food, there may even still be some pesticide residue on it. So it's, it's, really, it's really all over the place. So we've got to wake up to this. And we you know, really need to start advocating for industry companies and the government to do better. You mentioned thermal paper, thermal receipts. That's such a strange thing. What is it about? Is it the bisphenols that are in in these? Yeah, the chemicals that make up the ink in receipts are known to be endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Wow. So we want to- Go paperless. Go paperless, yes. Get your your receipts emailed to you. But, you know, I think the takeaway here isn't like be petrified of everything, right? Right. Get that receipt away from me. Don't touch the receipt, (laughs) right? Like we're talking about day-to-day, like what are the cumulative mountain of exposures that we're having? And- you know, perfection is a total myth. Like we're not going to get to a place where we're not exposed to any of these. And the most beautiful, I think, part of biology in the body is that we actually have incredible systems within our body to process a lot of chemicals. Like we have a liver that is a detoxification machine. We have a gut that excretes these things in our, in our stool. And so a big part of what our job is, is not only avoid these things, some of which are truly unavoidable, um, living, on this planet right. today. But what we can really focus on is to build our biologic resilience to allow us to process them. So minimize exposures as much as we can, but don't go crazy about it because we're never going to win that battle. We can advocate, we can try, but you know, minimize is the, the, the key name of the game because elimination is actually impossible. And then focus on what you can do to build your biologic resilience so that you can process these things when they go into a, your body. And a big part of that is optimizing liver function, making sure your gut function is working well, and then making sure your vascular system is on point so that you're getting blood flow throughout your body to move things. Yeah. Thank you. This is empowering. You know, it's both, it's one of our favorite words. And, you know, if we really think about this rationally, because we could try to run, you can run, but you can't hide. We're really existing in like a giant snow globe here being on this planet or maybe a giant aquarium. Right. But you just want to be like the most badass fish in the aquarium, you know, so that you're more kind of top of the food chain, resilient, able to adapt. And, you know, again, it's more so what can we do? And it starts with awareness, of course. And I want to talk about this a little bit more because I mentioned all of the synthetic chemicals that are being put onto our bodies, what we're breathing in our air. What is it specifically about? We'll just say like lotion, the average lotion, you know, Johnson and Johnson, you Mm -hmm. know, is this something to do with parabens? Can we talk about parabens or is that something we're going to find in personal care products? Yeah, I think you're going to find parabens. You're going to you're going to look at the back of your lotion container and you're going to see like a chunk of this many ingredients on it. Right. It's going to be like 
50 different ingredients. And I think the key thing that we want to focus on is like put products on your body that you understand what the actual words on that label are. Like it's it's a just absolute it it boggles the mind that we think that somehow our bodies like need this type of synthetic material in order to, you know, to to be for our skin to be soft or whatnot. Like and so I tend to really focus on how what how can we have the minimal amount of um, ingredients in a product and things that we know what they are and where they come from. So if it's cleaning supplies, focus on distilled white vinegar, water, and essential oils. It will do all the same stuff that the the spray product coming from the store that has 25 synthetic ingredients in it has. If you're talking about lotion, you know, organic jojoba oil, organic coconut oil, maybe or or if you want something that's a little bit more of a complex formulation, focus on a brand that has been vetted by the environmental working group, ewg.org, where we actually know based on research that the ingredients don't hurt the body, don't act as obesogen. And then for something like soap, get rid of the chemicals, you know, all these antibacterial chemicals, you know, it's, it's the soap water and friction of your hands that is going to do what you need it to do. And so I focus basically on just using like cast style soap and organic cast style soap, like Dr. Braun, I have a giant gallon size bottle of unscented organic cast style soap, and I use it for body soap, hand soap, and dish soap. And so right there, just by making a couple of those decisions, you can minimize hundreds of chemicals in your life per day. That's so practical. I love that. You know, when I think about, you know, the suave body lotion that I used to use growing up, you know, it's just one of the things coming from where I come from. You, you can't be ashy out here in these streets. All right. <laughs> so anyways, but you know, like you said, it's a list of 50 ingredients and you know, 49 of them, I have no idea what they are versus something that is far, far more effective in many ways and doesn't have a reverse reaction on my skin where my skin requires it in order yeah. to look normal. It might have one ingredient, coconut oil, right? It's just one, one ingredient, coconut oil versus, you know, fill in the blank, right? All of these other things. And again, like there are so many wonderful companies that are like aware of this and coming into the market and they're creating interesting combinations of things, but they're vetted in a way that is sustainable, in a way that's safe, in a way that's using minimal ingredients. So the same thing, if you think about our food, we're looking for that. If people are adept in this with their nutrition, right? We wanna eat more whole foods, things you can recognize where they come from. Why, why wouldn't we do this with our skin? Our skin eats as well, because this is how many of these compounds are actually getting into our bodies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, skin is the biggest organ in our body. It's this gigantic amount of surface area and we are just coating it and all these things and it's directly absorbed a lot of into our bloodstream. And so I think you're exactly right. We need to focus on skin just like we focus uh, with food because it's all going, it's all going inside and affecting our cellular biology and a lot of it in a negative way. Mm. Now, this one really doesn't get a lot of attention. And it's another one in the category of potential obesogens, which is pharmaceutical drugs. Specifically, when we talk about the class, the one that jumps to mind for me are antidepressants. And it's one of those things that's just kind of normalized. Like, yeah, you know, I gained some weight being on this medication. Why? What, like, what's going on here? What changed with your, with your metabolism as a result of taking this? And again, just the preface is obviously drugs have their place, but our society's reliance on drugs 
could be another contributing factor to our obesity epidemic as well. Yeah, this is one that I think is 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 largely unrecognized. And in this paper, they talk about of one of the many categories of obesogens, pharmaceutical medications can be one. And so the one that they really zero in on is antidepressants. And the side effects for antidepressants, you know, it's pretty high. In one study, you know, it, 26% of people are having fairly significant side effects when taking these medications. And one of the really big ones is weight gain. So you're putting this chemical in your body, you're gaining weight. This definitionally is then an obesogen. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's what it really highlights is that we need to have a much broader conversation about risk and benefit when we're taking these things, because, you know, you may be putting out this, this patient on this for a long time, and maybe they're having some subtle improvement in their symptoms. Maybe they're actually not having that many symptom uh, improvements in their symptoms, and yet they're dealing with these side effects that could ultimately shorten their life and contribute to worse mental health. Because we know that people with obesity and type two diabetes have higher rates of of issues like anxiety and depression. So it's this vicious vicious cycle, and we're not really doing a good job with informed consent uh, with a lot of this. One one thing that I think most people are not aware of, which I think should be front page news, is that there's been research that's shown that 150 minutes per week of aerobic, cardiovascular, physical activity has identical clinical outcomes to antidepressant use. And yet, if you look at side effects, you're looking at less than 5% of side effects with the exercise intervention and 26% of people with fairly significant side effects with the pharmaceutical intervention. And so you're weighing these two options, one that's free, has virtually no side effects, has multifarious other benefits, right. and you know, is, of course, also going to contribute to general well-being and health versus a medication that has more side effects that can promote weight gain, and that in many patients is not very effective. And yet, People don't even know that that's an option that they have. They have to find that by reading a book in the functional medicine space or doing their own research. But in my opinion, that should be on billboards. Absolutely. You just said it so perfectly. Or, of course, following Dr. Casey Means <laughs> and learning this stuff. You know, this is something that we've been talking a lot about recently that our society has unfortunately medicalized our emotions, you know, and it's one of the most valuable human entities, kind of mechanisms that we have within us to guide our behavior, to demonstrate our values, to help us to, you know, make changes, to adjust things, because these emotions are giving us biochemical feedback on, you know, what we might need to do, mm -hmm. but we'll just suppress it because we don't want to feel a thing. And there's a drug for that now. There's a, this pill for every ill kind of consciousness. Now, obviously, again, there's a place for this, but we're not trained as a society, which this should, this should be taught to children. Like this should be beginning in middle school, from my opinion, on really being able to, home, probably earlier, let me take that back because I've been teaching my son this stuff as well, but being able to zero in and pay attention to that emotional feedback. What is that emotion trying to signal for me? Mm. What is it directing me to do? What is this asking me to do in my life? Like what kind of attribute might be trying to get expressed? And for my son, you know, maybe he's having an issue with a friend, you know? And so maybe this is just demonstrating, if he's like angry with his friend, maybe it's demonstrating that he values being heard as much as he's listening, right? He thinks that other people should maybe do what he's doing. 
right? So just to be able to zero in and identify the emotion rather than just be an all-encompassing thing, you are this emotion. And we did a great episode recently with Dr. Susan David on this, psychologist. So we'll put that in the show notes for everybody. But it's such an important conversation to have because again, we've medicalized so much of natural human health and our functions instead of getting educated, like, why am I having this symptom mm. versus, you know, here's a drug to suppress the symptom. So with that being said, to shift gears just a little bit, I don't want to miss this. You mentioned pesticides as well, being in this category of obesogens. How? Like, what, do, what does pesticides have to do with gaining weight? Mm. Well, one of the major ways that pesticides can impact our metabolic health and propensity for weight gain is the impact on the microbiome. So you're putting these synthetic chemicals, which are toxic and that's not a controversial statement. They literally are meant to be insecticides to uh, kill to stuff. Kill stuff. <laughs> and, you know, we have trillions and trillions of bacteria in our gut that are working tirelessly to help support our health, our mental and physical health. And we are putting out an all out war on them mm. through through loading our bodies with these toxic chemicals. And so when I'm choosing organic food, I am directly thinking about my microbiome and that they can either be friends or foes. And it's that's determined by how I treat them and, and you know, trying to have pesticide free food as much as you can is one way that you can absolutely support that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. And in general, what we're trying to do with the pesticide is to disrupt the reproductive cycle of the pest. So generally they can be estrogenic to kind of make it so that they can't reproduce or they're neurogenic as well. They can have some detrimental impacts on their nervous system. But again, we see it as like, oh, they're just killing this. It's us against them, right? It's us against these insects, which they were here long before us and probably long, long after. Um, but it, you just said it, it's all out wars. It's a war going on. And a part of this, of course, is our cultivation of these monocrops, right? Just fields and fields and fields of the same thing which there's a place for that in, our, in agriculture, you know, but we're just destroying the soil, which leads us to the second one here that I wanna ask you about in this same category. And it's another huge lever of our metabolism that's often overlooked and it's micronutrients. So of course we know about the macronutrients is a huge part of nutrition, but why are the micronutrients so important for our metabolic health? This is one of my favorite topics, micronutrients, because just like you said, we focus so much on macronutrients, fat, protein, carbohydrates. But, and we often are talking about macronutrients in terms of the way that we're restricting them, like we're restricting fat or restricting carbohydrates. And, you know, what I always sort of think about is that, you know, you, you don't, you don't generate health. You don't build a healthy body by just restricting things. It's also about what you put in to facilitate the building and functioning of a healthy body. And that's where micronutrients come in because micronutrients are the small molecules, the vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that are found in our food, largely in our food, that support all of our cellular processes through several mechanisms. So there's three main ways that antioxidants support our biologic function. The first is that they can act as antioxidants. And so these are 
chemicals that basically bind to reactive oxygen species and to pro-oxidant molecules in the body and actually neutralize that, that damaging reactive molecule so that it's not going around and creating problems in the body. So a lot of vitamins, I don't think people realize this, a lot of vitamins in food actually act directly as antioxidants like selenium, vitamin A, vitamin C. The second thing that they can do is actually structurally incorporate into other molecules in the body so that they work properly. So an example of this is selenoproteins. So selenium is a micronutrient found in food. And to create selenoproteins in the body, of course, you need to incorporate selenium into that protein. If you're selenium deficient, that could create problems in creating a selenoprotein. And these are a whole class of molecules that are extremely important for longevity, for antioxidant function, and for immune function. And so this is why we often talk about how selenium is really involved in immune function. It's because it's being incorporated into selenoproteins. And so that's the second way that they are really valuable is structural incorporation into proteins. And the third way is that they act as little cofactors that bind to larger proteins and enzymes in the cell and actually act as almost like a lock and key, you know, cofactor that basically creates tiny conformational shifts in these proteins that allows them to work the way they're intended to. So to act like a little biologic machine. So you can imagine you've got this little, an enzyme in the body is essentially like a little machine that's going to convert A to B. So if you've got um, some substrate, it interacts with an enzyme and then you get you know, this, this product. And that's, that's basically how the body works. It's like you, you'd convert things from one thing to the other and processes happen in the body. And that's, that's kind of what's going on all the time. But for that enzyme to work, it often will need like a mineral or a vitamin to bind to it. And when that binding happens, because we're, you know, just this sort of like buzzing hive of atoms, what happens is when you have that binding, you get a little teeny, teeny microscopic conformational shift in that. And that is sometimes a thing that can let a ion channel open, let an enzyme do the chemical reaction it needs to do. So I'm kind of always thinking about my body as like this, just this like hive, this factory basically of all these little things happening. And when I'm loading my body with micronutrients, I'm facilitating these chemical reactions. So those are the three main ways that micronutrients are important. And unfortunately, because we're eating a largely processed diet that's ultra refined, we're stripping away so many of these micronutrients from our diet and we're actually depleting these things. On top of that, because of the issues with monocropping and our poor soil health, the soil actually doesn't have as many micronutrients in it. So even if we're eating a whole foods diet and really trying to focus on food quality, we're getting less micronutrients in than we may have 50 or a hundred years ago. And so this is why I think a really huge focus on regenerating soil health in our country and really getting a lot of that functionality back to the soil is so important if we really want to get on top of this, this micronutrient depleted issue that we have. 50% of Americans are now depleted in at least one critical micronutrient. And so it's quite important that we start thinking about this in terms of our diet. And how it relates to weight and obesity and metabolic health really comes down to the mitochondria. Mm. So in the mitochondria, which is the energy factory of our cells, um, and which is where the final stages of glucose getting converted to cellular energy happens. So fundamentally, we want to get glucose to be converted to ATP, which is this currency 
uh, in the body that the uh, this currency of energy that the body can actually use. And at the final stages of that process, there's what's called the electron transport chain, which is four of these sort of protein machines that I'm talking about, enzymes that ultimately transfer electrons um, in such a way that we generate ATP. Each of those little protein machines in the electron transport chain, which is in the mitochondria, they each require several vitamin and mineral cofactors to function. And some of the key ones for that are B vitamins, manganese, magnesium, zinc, vitamin C, um, several others, but those are some of the key ones. And so if we are deplete in those, we are literally not able to make energy as effectively mm-hmm. in the body. And many of us are deficient. And you know how it is with children these days, like 70% of their calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. So we are literally like depriving the body of these these tiny little molecular products that are actually going to make our bodies function properly. You can imagine it's like if you had a factory with all these machines and there were literally screws that were just not in the machine, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't work properly. And that is something that we have control over by basically what we're choosing in terms of the food we're putting in our mouth. So when I'm at the grocery store, I am frankly on a micronutrient hunt. And the, the simple way to do that is diversity of foods that you're eating, focusing on whole foods, focusing on foods that were grown with the best possible soil quality. So organic or generally farmed is going to ideally give you better micronutrient quality and then getting as many colorful foods as you possibly can, because color is a sign of there being an abundance of of these micronutrients in the food. Um, So get the purples, get the reds, get the blues, get the, you know, white foods like cauliflower, get all sorts of foods. And if you if you at least focus on that diversity of color and really trying to focus on the h- highest quality whole foods you can find, it's a great step towards getting your micronutrient needs met. Absolutely. So there's an energy crisis going on. It's not just out there externally. It's in our bodies, yeah. truly. You know, and you sent me this paper. This isn't just, again, we're talking about the deficiency in our food because of the problems with our soil and how we've kind of degraded our land, you sent me a paper that literally just broke it down as far as fruits and vegetables being far less nutritious than they used to be, you know, just in the last few decades, like just that the actual nutrition that you can get from the same food, whether it's a cucumber or, you know, uh, an eggplant, which the eggplant is, we'll talk about that later. Uh, We'll talk (laughs) about the eggplant emoji, stay tuned. Um, But please understand, like, one of the ways that we can address this is yes, pay attention to getting organic food, which is, you know, we've got a few studies demonstrating that they're going to be richer, not just avoiding the problems, but also have a denser source of micronutrients and also diversity, like you mentioned, like eating. That's another thing that's gone down dramatically in the last few decades is the diversity of foods that we would eat. If we look at hunter-gatherer tribes, they're eating, you know, four or five times more different foods. And it might look like we're eating diverse foods when you go to the grocery store because it's like all these aisles, all these different products, but they're largely made from the same like 10 to 12 foods, mm-hmm. right? Corn in different ways, right? If we get into the cereal aisle, which we got to talk about that too, corn or wheat or soy, just like packaged up in these different ways to look like a variety, but it's really, we're eating the same stuff over and over again. And I want to ask you specifically about uh, ATP. So the action of the mitochondria, this is critical if we're talking about metabolism, because if we're talking about 
utilizing stored energy on our bodies, right? We're wanting to get rid of the, the energy that we're carrying around, the excess energy. The exit point is gonna be through the mitochondria making it into ATP, right? So you mentioned that micronutrients, specifically antioxidants, they can protect our mitochondria so they're healthy and able to do their jobs, right? But also there's a specific micronutrient that's required for ATP to be biologically active. Right. Which one is that? Magnesium. Mm. Yeah, so this is really interesting. And that's, it's such a great point. And this is definitely something I did a lot in medical school. For ATP, this energy molecule to be biologically active, it has to actually be bound to magnesium. And magnesium has over 400 biologic activities in the human body, ranging from so many metabolic processes, um, but also to, you know, neurotransmitter synthesis and all sorts of things. And we, I think many people are deficient in magnesium. And it's actually, I think, very much our responsibility to actually learn and understand what micronutrients are actually really important for our body to function and then understand where we get those things. So what are the sources? So for instance, with magnesium, I know I want that to be just like on point. And so I'm, I've got pumpkin seeds at the ready basically all the time. It's one of my favorite sources of magnesium. There's like, you can meet the, the recommended daily intake of magnesium just by eating, you know, a handful basically of pumpkin seeds. So that's like one of my go-tos. And so if I'm making a nut milk one week in the Vitamix, I'll throw in some pumpkin seeds. If I'm making a trails mix, I'll throw in some pumpkin seeds. There's lots of sources, but doing the research to understand some of this stuff, it's it actually is something we have to do. I mean, we we have this body and unfortunately because of the way the system has been designed, the healthcare system and the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and a lot of other complex factors at, at play, we've unfortunately kind of I think gotten in this cultural mindset that we outsource that type of empowerment or um, knowledge to other people. Like, oh, they'll tell me what I need to do. They'll tell me what I need to eat. That's not that's not working. Your doctor's not telling you, you know, which micronutrients are super important for your health, even if they are actually critical for particular health issues that you are facing, like obesity and diabetes and heart disease. So, fortunately, there's lots of great resources out there now, like your podcast. We have lots of posts about this on the Levels blog, really practical information, but like virtually like no one's coming to, you know, fix this in your life. You really actually do have to kind of understand this information for yourself and advocate for yourself um, and learn. And we all, it's the information's not that complex. We can all do it. You just said it. You know, that's the thing too, is that this can be, this can be actually a really fun experience. Because for me, when I was going into my conventional university setting, which again, same here, I was not taught that magnesium was required for ATP to be biologically active. We were just taught this process, get ATP, the body's energy currency, woo, end of story. About 56% of United States citizens are deficient in magnesium. All right. I didn't it's, even know it that was that high. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. 56%. Yeah. So we're talking again, the majority of the population. And a big reason why you just mentioned it's responsible for hundreds of biochemical processes in the body, 
What that means, this is going back to your, there's some screws loose or some screws missing in that factory, our metabolic factory. We literally can't do certain process. Our body can't do it or can't do it efficiently if we're deficient in these key nutrients. Magnesium is a big one. And you mentioned the diversity, like magnesium is critical for your cardiovascular system, your immune system, your muscles, you know, just being able to contract and relax your muscles. And that's the thing too that, that I want to talk about. Magnesium plays such a huge role in, in your body's management of stress, like that switching from parasympathetic to sympathetic and back. So that sympathetic fight or flight to the parasympathetic rest and digest. Magnesium is key in this equation. And the reason that, number one, it's responsible for so much, but the reason we're so deficient is it's just getting zapped. Like our body is using so much of it today. We're just, we're in stressful conditions, whether we realize it or not. Mm. And so like being adamant about getting food sources. So you mentioned pumpkin seeds being a great one. Uh, anything green really is gonna be mm. a decent source of magnesium. Chocolate, funny mm -hmm. enough. Now, what if you combine some of these things together, make some food bars of your own, you know, Dr. Casey's Kitchen, you know, you teach us how to, mm -hmm. to make fun stuff like this. But um, again, this can be a fun process. It can be joyful. But to go back to my original point, you know, it's really about how we're taught and making it relevant, mm. right? We're so inundated with the idea that our health is out of our hands, right? We're victims and we're just being indoctrinated with these beliefs that, you know, if this problem's going on, I'm just missing a drug. You know, I've got a drug deficiency. Fuck magnesium. I need, <laughs> I need this prescription, <laughs> you know? But again, these are things that our bodies require in order to have healthy function. It's basic stuff. Yeah. I mean, you brought up such a great point too, which is that these needs aren't static. They're actually very dynamic based on your particular conditions at the time. And I think that's another level of complexity that's actually really important for us to to kind of tune into as people. You mentioned that sometimes with stress, you may be depleting your magnesium more quickly as you're trying to adapt to these conditions. So your functional need for optimal function is actually higher than it might be on a day that you're totally chilled out and on vacation. And so the beauty of food is that it's this tool that we can use to flex up and flex down these substrates that are needed to help us function optimally. This is one of the reasons I'm so excited about the future of expanded continuous biomonitoring, because one of the ways that I really think about health, a framework that I think about health, is that it's actually a matching problem. We have this body that's this complex machine and we have all these things that can go into it like food and sunlight exposure and exercise these external things and really when we match what the machine needs in a given moment with what we're putting into it we have optimal function and that is health and that is minimization of symptoms or disease but when there's a mismatch between what the machine needs and what you're putting in that is the root of symptoms and disease. And right now we have very little visibility into the black box of that body, like what's going on inside of it. And so it's actually a crapshoot to figure out what we should be putting in at any given moment. This is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about continuous glucose monitoring and levels. Like when you think about that type of matching problem, it's like, okay, well, I just had this breakfast. My glucose went up through the roof. I need to match that with a walk because I want to bring that down. I have a particular condition. And so there's something I should do to bring myself back to homeostasis. 
But right now we can't do that for for anything else. We can't do it for micronutrients. We can't do it for our stress hormones. You know, if we knew that our cortisol was high in this moment, we could match that with a diaphragmatic breath or a 10 minute meditation app. And so right now we're relying mostly on body awareness, which is a a great thing, but a lot of us are missing that. You know, it's not something that we're taught how to sit still and think about what the body, you know, is feeling in a given moment. But but I think when you start just learning some of these basic principles about the dynamic needs of the body and then how to meet some of those needs, it can be really empowering. So for instance, like you said, if you're in a stressful situation, I'm often thinking about more magnesium. I'm thinking about, so I'm thinking pumpkin seeds, yeah, dark chocolate, leafy greens. And then I'm thinking also about B vitamins because those can be depleted when we make some of our stress hormones. So if we're pumping those out all the time, we may need higher B vitamins. So, you know, when I was, for instance, very stressed after losing my mother last year, I totally changed my supplement regimen. I was like, my body is in a totally different state right now. And I need to actually supplement with more of these types of things to kind of help with my production of these hormones, especially. And then I think I'm also often thinking about like with COVID, for instance, it's like, okay, I always want my immune system to be super on point, but like zinc, selenium, magnesium, like vitamin D, like make sure that I'm just like super dialed in. I'm not on the low end of normal for vitamin D. I'm on the top end of normal. So kind of just always in real time adjusting to the realities of our circumstances, trying to kind of almost intuit what's going on with the biologic dynamic realities, ideally use lab testing to verify that and then meet those needs with the choices you make through food and lifestyle activities. And that is essentially the framework that I think we really need to focus on for for optimal health. And it sounds complex, but I think as you know, once you kind of get these principles yeah. down, it's actually pretty straightforward to let this play out in your life. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't like the term getting back to, you know, and because we're I Hear me out, hear me out. <laughs> because we are always evolving. We're constantly moving forward. Like, unless you've got a time machine, you can't really go back. But what we can do is move forward with greater intelligence mm-hmm. to learn from the past. And so I'm prefacing this statement, which is getting back to, this is what I was going to say, but it's really something for us to use moving forward, being able to really tune in and understand our own bodies and what we need right now, which is definitely going to change from day to day, from season to season. And it's a, it's a great gift that we, we have access to right now in this moment, but we're so externally focused. There's so much external stimulation and so many mixed messages, but nobody can really tell you about you like you can, you know? And I don't wanna miss this, you said the S word in there, you said sunlight. Mm. How does sunlight affect our metabolic health? Mm. Sunlight. Is I am so excited to be more a part of the health conversation and like shout out to Andrew Huberman, who I feel like has been such an amazing person bringing this to the daylight, you know, but it's (laughs) what I the way I think about sunlight is that just like food is molecular information for our bodies, sunlight is energetic information for our bodies. And so we need to get the right information in at the right times if we want the body to function properly. So we, it's so incredible that we actually have cells that respond 
to photons, to packets of light energy that have traveled from the sun. Millions of miles. It's, it's so amazing. Bananas. And we have cell receptors that can absorb them and that can make that, 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 that energy that they absorb creates, again, a tiny physical conformational shift in some proteins that sets off a neuron to fire and this is happening in our retina Mm. so the light's going in traveling millions of miles binding to our photoreceptor cells in our retina setting off a axon you know an impulse to our brain goes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain and that's sort of like the internal biologic clock part of the brain and from there sets off this incredible cascade of events that goes on throughout our entire body that essentially tells the body this is what time of day it is, and this is what the body needs to do right now. It's amazing. It's awe-inspiring to me. And unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of bad news, I feel like, when we're talking about this stuff. In our modern living, in our modern world, we've totally changed our relationship to sunlight. And that's actually an incredibly modern phenomenon that we can have like an entire day go by where we don't go outside. I mean, this even happens to me sometimes. I wake up, I brush my teeth. I make my coffee. I sit down at my desk. All of a sudden it's 3 p.m. And I'm like, Shit. I have not been outside, which means that my body has not been exposed to the energetic information that will travel to my brain and tell my cells how to work properly. And one of the things that's really important about what's going on with the suprachiasmatic nucleus is that it is basically telling the body which genes to be turned on and off like during the day and during the night. So you're, you're, you're changing gene expression by your exposure to light. You're also changing hormonal pathways. Um, and many metabolic pathways are controlled by circadian rhythms and by sunlight. So what I, what's really, I think just like simple takeaway for people is that it is very important for your body to know when it is the morning. And it's, really going to know that most strongly if it actually, if the, if the eyes are exposed to sunlight. So you need to go outside in the morning, whether it's cloudy or, or whatever, there's still sunlight coming through and expose your body to that energetic information. And so I now brush my teeth outside every single day. Like no matter what, I just like, I just walk outside and I do that two or three minutes to make sure. And I, I stare at the sky, don't wear sunglasses, don't do it through a window because that will actually block a lot of that, that sunlight energy and let your body, you know, know what time it is essentially in that energetic way. So, so I think that's a really big missing piece of the weight and metabolism conversation. Because again, we focus so much on food and exercise, but it all, these things all work together to create homeostasis and, and we got to lean into them. The micronutrients, avoidance of obesogens, good exposure to sunlight, microbiome optimization, and then of course, sleep, stress management, exercise, and healthy food. Those are really the pillars that we need to think about. Yeah. So these are all things that our genes expect us to interact with, to have. Exactly. For healthy expression. You know, it's so crazy. You mentioned that this is a modern phenomenon, us being kind of broken up with the sun in a sense, you know? And this relationship is, is essential. You said something there that really just jumped out at me, which is when our bodies are exposed to sunlight, it's telling our bodies 
what time it is, and thus what processes need to be happening right now. What your digestion should be doing, what your hormones should be doing, what your immune system should be doing, and specifically even, let's just lean into the hormone aspect, for example. That early morning sun exposure is going to influence the production of neurotransmitters mm -hmm. and you know, even the dual neurotransmitter hormone like serotonin, for example. There's more and more data coming out on this with sunlight and serotonin production. And one of the most fascinating studies showed that even on overcast days or even during the winter, when folks were getting less access to sunlight, they ended up having less production or mobilization of serotonin in their systems. So again, it's just even when there isn't that much sun outside, it's still poking through. Like yeah. you, the sun has that hang time, you know, like. It's a thing with hair. Shout out to everybody who knows what that is. <laughs> so if you got long hair, you got the hang time. The sun's hang time is immaculate. It's like if the sun was a person, it's like Crystal Gale, all right, down to the ankles. <laughs> I grew up with country music. I'm sorry. Uh, shout out to Crystal Gale and my grandma. Um, but anyways, the sun's hang time is going to reach you no matter what. And so getting that exposure on your skin, you know, as you mentioned, being able to absorb it through our eyes, even our skin, if you think about this. So this is something that's being brought forth a little bit more, but I want to point it back to a logical perspective because our, our skin having photoreceptors is still kind of, we're still trying to piece that together, but your skin literally changes. The color of your skin changes by the sun's rays touching it. Do you understand? Like, so your we skin. know it's light sensitive, right? Because yeah. it's a tan. Like, I mean, yeah. come on. Like, it's the most obvious thing, yeah. you know? And it's, it's turning on programs. And yeah. even that's inciting the process of vitamin D production. Exactly. Right? It's just, but now, more so in our society, there is far more fear of the sun than there is fear of not getting sunlight, which that should be the reverse. Now, there's a huge push from certain camps in medicine, which again, it's still meaning well if we talk about dermatology, for example, and just like the sun is going to create all of these issues, going to, you know, the aging, uh, melanomas, all these different things. And these things can happen, but we're not looking at what were humans doing literally for hundreds of thousands of years when there wasn't even this distinction of being indoors or outdoors. Like we just kind of lived in association with nature. You're getting sun exposure every day. And today it's just like, what are the components? Maybe it's because we go from not getting hardly any sunlight at all to going on a two week vacation in Florida, right? Or we go from eating all of these abnormal things, you know, eating a natural diet for our evolution to today. What is our skin made out of, right? Because isn't our diet affecting how the sun might affect us? Oh, absolutely. I mean, something I think about when I'm, when I've gotten a little bit more sun exposure and, you know, we know that, you know, UV rays can cause or that can be mutagenic and can cause DNA damage. But like the cool thing about something cool about the body is that it's actually got lots of DNA repair enzymes that actually are like little machines that go around and repair DNA that's been broken or mutated by different mutagens of which UV rays is one. And it's like you think about this again, it's like, well, what what gets our genetic pathways to work properly? Well, food is a big one. Micronutrients are a big one. These are just little machines that essentially need to be expressed properly, function properly. And so I'm always thinking about like, how do I get my, you know, 
basically DNA repair enzymes to be working properly. So again, you obviously, it's same thing as we talked about with obesogens. You want to reduce excessive exposure to things that are harmful, but you also want to focus on the things that your body can do to protect you from the inevitable risks that happen because of living. And we're living in a world right now, unfortunately, where we've really started having a very confused relationship with risk, I think, where success criteria is that we have zero risk and then forget that the flip side of that coin could actually be potentially more damaging or sometimes more lethal than the uh, the steps we're taking to minimize risk. So that's a whole nother. But but to to focus back on um, on the sunlight question and, and, and just sort of that conversation, I think there's this term that I love. Uh, which is essentially talking about what's happening to the the modern body, which is we're getting lots of irregular photic signals. And so what that means is that the light our bodies have evolved over millions of years to experience and to interface with at certain periods of the day, we're giving it irregular signals. So that means no sunlight in the morning and then lots of blue light at night because we're staring at our screens and you know, looking at we've got the light bulbs and all this stuff. And so can you just imagine how confusing that is for ourselves? It's like, wait a minute. Okay, millions of years, we did sun in the morning and dark at night. And now we're doing dark in the morning and sun at night. Like it's of course we're sick. <laughs> like, And I think uh, we've there's been studies that have looked at how this affects metabolic health. And when you are exposed even for one night to excessive blue light at night, it impairs glucose and insulin function the next day. Like it's one just and this is happening to us every single day. Um, and so it has this really important impact on our metabolic health. You mentioned vitamin D, which I think are another really important part of the conversation. Light is required for the vitamin D synthesis process. Vitamin D is is just just pleiotropic in its effects in the body. We need it for optimal health. And so um, if we are just not exposing our bodies to sunlight, we're going to have issues with vitamin D production. And you just, yeah, you, you can't have optimal functioning without really adequate vitamin D levels. And the last thing that I really think about a lot when I think about sunlight is that we are, we have chosen to essentially disconnect ourselves to source and to this source energy that gives all things life. And on sort of a bit more of like a woo-woo or philosophical level, it's like that can't be good for us to be separated from this life-giving energy. And so you think about metabolism. Well, where does glucose come from? Glucose comes from the sun, essentially. Sun interacts with plants and with chloroplasts and, we gen and generate carbohydrates from the reaction. And it's like, this cycle that with without the sun, there's no there's no glucose, there's no carbohydrates that are created by the plants. And then what do we do? Either the animals eat those things or we eat those things. And then we then basically are just a secondary conversion process mm. of what the sun has created in plants to create our own ATP. So we are so intimately linked to the sun. We are essentially just a downstream manifestation of chemical reactions that started on this the star and that i mean it, i don't it's it's kind of wild to think about but but it helps make me feel more compelled and connected to 
live in a bit more of a natural way because when you when you take away that connection it's, it's similar to how i think about the microbiome i mean the microbiome they were the bacteria were here a long time before us we know that mitochondria are essentially remnant you know bacteria that that eukaryotic prokaryotic cells took up to make eukaryotic cells which are what make up the human body and and we're poisoning them you know we're poisoning these parts of our cell that give us our spark, that give us energy, that give us life. Um, and so I think a lot of the future of health and really reversing our chronic disease epidemic is having respect for where we've come from and what gives us life and gives us energy and stop separating from it and stop poisoning it. Yeah, man, that's powerful. So powerful. So to Pivot from this relationship that we have with the sun, which is an intimate, powerful relationship. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> All right. Uh, fertility and metabolic health are tightly linked. And I don't think the average person has any idea about that. So let's dive in and talk about that association. This is a fascinating relationship <clears throat> because the way I would sum it up is if you care about fertility, sexual function, or sexual pleasure, then it is in your best interest to focus on your metabolic health and metabolic optimization because they are inextricably linked. There's a lot in this, this connection, but I think it's actually really important to understand some of the stats around sexual health and sexual function right now because they're pretty bad. And and the research is really showing us that there may be a very direct mechanistic link between the sexual function issues that we're seeing in society and the underlying metabolic uh, issues that we're seeing in society. So looking at sexual function. So if you look at women, um, around 85% of women after menopause have report sexual dysfunction symptoms. So this means issues with desire or orgasm. And even before menopause, that number is in about the 40 to 50% range. If you look at men, 52% of men are recording issues with sexual dysfunction. So this is things like erectile dysfunction. And even under the age of 40, that number is still 25%. So this is not like 10% of people are having issues with desire, libido, you know, erection. This is like, we're talking the majority of people. And it's like, what is, what is more evolutionarily vital than like our desire and ability to reproduce? And that's under siege right now, essentially. And, and the evidence suggests that these numbers are, are going up. So then we think about how this could be related to metabolism. Well, first big picture thing, again, metabolism is how we produce energy in the body. And sexual function is a really complex process. The whole body has to basically be firing on all cylinders for this process to happen because we are talking about psychological elements, neurologic elements, hormonal elements, and vascular elements. So vascular, we need blood flow to the penis to have an erection. Hormonal, we need testosterone to make sperm. Psychological, we have to be in a good mood or in a particular mood a to particular want to mood. a particular mood <laughs> to want to you know pursue sex and neurologic we need the nerves 
to actually be going to the penis or the clitoris or whatnot to not only feel and transmit what's happening, but also to stimulate the nerves to kind of get the function that we need. So it's like the body needs to be just like boom, 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 boom for all of this to work. And how does how do we get the body to be firing on all cylinders? Well, we need energy and energy comes from metabolism and 88% of American adults are metabolically dysfunctional. So that's just kind of big picture there. And then you think about some of the specific links and you really can break it down into three things that, met, that where metabolism is directly impairing sexual function. And it comes down to blood flow, hormones, and psychology. And so when we talk about blood flow, really metabolism is, is often the term cardiometabolic health is used because cardiac health and metabolic health are so inextricably linked. When we have metabolic dysfunction and we are having trouble processing glucose into energy in the body, trouble making energy in the body, this can create oxidative stress and inflammation, both of which can cause issues with the blood vessels, causing them to narrow and thicken and have more difficulty getting blood flow to where it needs to go in the body. We talked about this on our last episode, but you know, having um, you know, something like type 2 diabetes, this puts us at much higher risk for stroke and heart disease and these issues where we're having blood flow, uh, having trouble getting somewhere in the body. But this is no difference than having trouble getting blood flow to the reproductive organs. And so, you know, for women to even have adequate lubrication, you need blood flow to that area so that that can actually happen. The clitoris and the penis both are erectile tissues that fill with blood when they are stimulated. So if you're having issues with that process, it's going to have an impact. The other big piece is nitric oxide. So insulin resistance, which is the process, you know, that that ensues towards type 2 diabetes and prediabetes, where the body has trouble taking up glucose out of the bloodstream and is a sign of uh, metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance actually affects the brain in such a way that the brain has trouble setting off the pathway towards creating nitric oxide synthesis in the body. And nitric oxide is this amazing chemical in the body that causes blood vessel dilation. So you've got inflammation and oxidative stress that are leading to blood vessel thickening and narrowing. You've got insulin resistance leading to nitric oxide issues. So you're not getting the dilation you need of the blood vessels. And all of this is going to have a huge impact on our ability to feed erectile tissue with blood. The other thing that nitric oxide does is actually causes it has an impact on the on vaginal wall function. It's a relaxer, basically. And so it's going to have an impact on female sexual function in several different ways. So that's kind of just the blood flow piece right there. And then we've still got hormonal and mood, but kind of just starting to paint the picture that like these things mechanistically are very linked. And so we want to optimize metabolic health so we can optimize vascular health. And that, of course, is going to feed into optimal sexual health. Wow. Wow. This is freaking blowing my mind, truly. <laughs> because again, we don't put these pieces together. We just kind of feel victimized by a condition and we don't know the origin. And there's so much within our control, again, leaning towards being more metabolically healthy. These things just, these are just normal things. These, these are normal actions of the body that we don't really have to think much about until something's wrong. Yeah. And that's, that's when we become concerned. And I want to tie this back because a part of 
<laughs> part of the the humping aspect is fertility, right? I, I know. I'm just. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> a part of this, there's so many different words that I had scanned there to use, but a part of that process is, you know, the the biological thrust thrust. All right, <laughs> this is gonna be. This is good. Is towards reproduction itself, right? And so we're seeing some really scary things happening with fertility in our culture in the last few decades. So you sent me over some resources and I've just been jumping in and looking at jumping in. All right, all right, I'm done, I'm done. And looking at some of these papers, one large study found that infertility rates globally have risen 15% from 1900 to 2017, so about 100 years. And that was knocking on the door of almost being half of a percent each year fertility rates going down. Mm -hmm. It's like, what the heck is going on? And people are really not talking about this. And you also mentioned uh, some of this research on sperm count. Can you talk about the sperm issue and just overall fertility? Absolutely. So evidence suggests that sperm counts are down 50% in the last 30 years. And this is, this is shocking. I mean, because like, what's the end state of this if this just keeps getting worse? That's and crazy. we look at the relationship between metabolism, weight, and sperm count. And there was a study out of Harvard that showed that compared to a normal weight man, if you are a man with obesity, you're 80% more likely to have zero sperm in your semen. So like sperm-free semen. And so we're now in the country at 74% rate of overweight and obesity. And so you start putting these things together and it's like, we could be, this could be a big problem. About 50% of infertility that we're, we're dealing with today is male factor infertility. And a lot of this seems to be related to, to weight. There's also a lot of talk about how these endocrine disrupting chemicals, like we talked about earlier, may be relating to declining sperm quality and quantity, but in this more systems biology perspective that you know we talk about of how these things are all interrelated, you can see how these are not separate issues. It's like the endocrine disrupting chemicals, it's affecting sperm, it's affecting metabolism, we've got weight going up, that's affecting hormones. And the end result here in this whole milieu is that we have poor sperm count and quality. One of the things that's affecting this is that in men, when you have excess body fat, fat is this amazing organ that I don't think we recognize very often is actually an endocrine organ. Fat actually can convert testosterone to estrogen. And Dr. Ben Bickman, who wrote Why We Get Sick, he, he creates this analogy of like fat in a man is like basically a giant ovary. Mm. And it's converting testosterone to estrogen. Aromatization. Aromatization. And this, you need the right balance of testosterone in a man's body in order to produce sperm effectively. So that's kind of what's happening on the male front. And, um, and then of course you've got the issues with erectile dysfunction, like we just talked about. So that's like getting the sperm out of the body. Right, <laughs> right. So on step one, step one is make the sperm step two, get it out. And it's like both of those issues are having big problems. And let's not forget 
we actually know that men with erectile dysfunction have a 192% higher chance of depression than men without erectile dysfunction. And it's kind of a question of like, what's the chicken and the egg there? But because we know the relationship between metabolism and depression, we can see how a lot of these things may actually be linked mechanistically by what's going on under the hood. But there are several things that under the hood. Under the hood. All right. <laughs> but you know, even just things like stress management, getting adequate sleep, aerobic exercise, resistance training, and high quality nutrient dense diet, we know that all of those things can help with testosterone production in the body and specifically weight loss. Even losing 10% of your body weight can have a significant impact on testosterone levels. So that's just, this is all what's going on with men. Then you look at female fertility. And this, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> both are so alarming, but with women, the leading cause of infertility in the United States is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And polycystic ovarian syndrome is actually fundamentally a metabolic issue. And actually, in 2012, the NIH wanted to change the name of PCOS to multi system reproductive metabolic syndrome. So really call it what it is, multi-system reproductive metabolic issue. But instead we've kept this name that's really difficult to understand, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Not every woman with this disease actually has cystic ovaries. So it's, it's, just, it's just a strange name. But really what it is, is fundamentally there's a, a strong mechanistic overlap with uh, insulin resistance and metabolic issues. And the reason for this is because when we have high insulin levels in the body, which is what happens when we are insulin resistant or have metabolic dysfunction. The body overcompensates to this block of being able to get glucose into the cells by producing more insulin to help drive glucose into the cells to overcome the insulin resistance. We end up with hyperinsulinemia. It's like high, a riot. Yeah, exactly. We end up with high insulin levels. And what do those insulin levels do? They do stuff all over the body. But in the ovary, what they do is they stimulate the ovary to make more testosterone. So now you've got women making more male hormones, androgens, and then that is setting off menstrual irregularity, issues with infertility, as well as some of the other associated symptoms of PCOS, like hirsutism, which is like excess hair growth, um, more central obesity, storing fat more in the midline and acne. So these are a lot of the things that people with PCOS deal with. And insulin also stimulates the ovary to upregulate this cell type called the theca cell that make these androgens. So you not only get higher stimulation of androgens, but you get proliferation of this cell type. So, so that's happening. And what's interesting though, is that in the research, several studies have shown that lowering your insulin levels improving insulin sensitivity, improving metabolic health can significantly improve PCOS symptoms and normalize sex hormones. There was an amazing study about two years ago that I loved that was looking at a ketogenic Mediterranean diet in 14 women for just 12 weeks, and they all had PCOS. And the diet was actually what I loved about the study is that it was actually a very healthy diet. It was ketogenic, but not focused on just like all animal protein. It was actually unlimited quantities of 
leafy green vegetables. So there was no restriction. They could have as much of those as they wanted. A very moderate amount of animal protein. And it had it was fish and you know, poultry. And then they added in supplements of plant polyphenols. So these plant chemicals that can be very protective. And so it wasn't restrictive. It included a lot of greens and it was low overall, a low carbohydrate diet. They did this for 12 weeks. The women lost on average 20 pounds in the study average. Their insulin levels plummeted, triglycerides plummeted, HDL went up, LDL went down, insulin sensitivity went up, fasting glucose went down, and their sex hormones by and large in all the the patients went to more normal levels. Mm. And so it's just like, why again, front page news. It's like, this is not, this is doable. We can do this. And I don't think the average woman with infertility knows this. I think there's often just a treadmill that you go on towards hormonal therapy, assistive reproductive technology. We're doing about 200,000 assisted reproductive technology procedures per year, things like IVF. And we're doing this before we do some of the foundational stuff like focus on dietary and lifestyle habits and think about the true physiology of what might be going into some of these issues. So I want that to be a message that women hear so they feel empowered to maybe dig into this a little bit more before they go through the pain and expense of more interventional uh, fertility um, you know, paths. Um, and, and of course, this isn't going to work for everyone. This isn't, I'm not making universal statements about what's causing infertility, but it's clearly a well-defined link that we should be more aware of. Thank you so much for sharing that because again, this is putting more power into our hands and understanding again, this is not this all-encompassing thing, but we know that improving our metabolic health as a species is going to lead to all these wonderful outcomes versus the alternative, which is what we're seeing right now. Something is clearly off. And you just mentioned several notes of how insulin is playing into this equation with infertility, potentially in these various ways. This is something that we have dominion over in so many ways with, within ourselves, with our lifestyle. Specifically, you know, one of the things that I found with levels, and we talked about this the last time you were on, was how stress can make my, my blood sugar a little bit wonky as compared to any dietary changes for me personally. Like my body is pretty good at sorting out different foods, but if I'm stressed, that can, that can influence what my blood sugar is doing, thus influencing insulin, what glucagon could potentially be doing. There's all these other downstream effects of this, but I can monitor and I can get a handle on this thing. And everybody's different. This is the key. This is what I'm leaning into right now. Because the way that certain foods affect you is going to be different from the next person. And we have the ability today. This is why I'm so, I'm so grateful for you. I just really am. Because you're doing something about this. And you're giving us tools so that we can actually tune in to understand what our body's best nutrition sources are. What our best practices are as far as our exercise and our sleep quality and all these things. But I can see real-time data. And this is the, the change that's just recently happened with levels is that you can get real time, like real time, because there is a modality, which is still available as well, where you can use your phone and check in and see what your blood sugar is doing. But now there's also real time data was constantly getting fed to your device so you can know where you stand. And it's such a cool innovation. And also when you were on last time, there was a waiting list and it was 
a huge waiting list to be able to get access. Now the waiting list is over, I believe, right? That's right. Okay, so people can now get easy access to Levels Continuous Glucose Monitor. I just got myself a new one. My wife got one actually before we even talked um, today. She, she had got herself one, but I just got one of the new ones so I can track the real-time data for myself. And you know, it's such a cool opportunity for us, number one. And by the way, if you want access, you can skip the waiting line. The, the waiting line is over now. Go to levels.link forward slash model. All right, that's L-E-V-E-L-S dot link forward slash model. And you can get access, special access to levels today. And if you could, I want to talk about the updates with levels. And also you got some updates on some of the craziest foods, some of the foods that most derange our blood sugar that most people have no idea about. So I want to talk about both of those things. Mm. Let's dive in. Yes. So as you said, we are, the wait list is finally over. It's been almost three years and we are so excited to open the gates to everyone who wants to use it. So it's a very exciting month for that and for access to this super empowering information. And, and yeah, the data set keeps just growing and growing and growing. We have now over 2 million food logs paired with continuous glucose data and over 200 million glucose data points. So we're starting to just see more and more of these relationships between what large populations of people are eating and what type of lifestyle factors, lifestyle activities they're engaging in, and then what's happening to our glucose levels. So I'm always fascinated by seeing like within a particular food category, like what are kind of the worst offenders and like which ones are kind of okay? Because I think I'm always thinking about that person at the grocery store who wants to be healthy, who wants to lose weight. And I absolutely believe the average person wants to be healthy and wants to make decisions to do so. But we're living in a a world in which it's very difficult to make healthy decisions because marketing is so strong. We're subsidizing the unhealthiest foods to make them cheaper. They're in our hospitals. They're in our schools. They're everywhere. You know, even the number one line item on SNAP, on, you know, these government assisted uh, food programs is soda. And because the government is is subsidizing, you know, the high fructose corn (sighs) syrup in this. And so we're up against a lot. And so I think about this person standing at the grocery store and they're looking at a wall of items to choose from. And they're like, I have no idea what to choose. What is healthy? This box says healthy. This box says healthy. This box says low sugar, low fat, low carb, high fiber. What do you do? And so in the levels data set, we're starting to really see particular brands that are emerging as better than others within a category. So like within the cracker category, it's like I am now very much eating flackers and Ella's flats. So flackers are made of flax seeds. They don't do anything to my blood sugar. I think they're delicious. Ella's flats are made of nuts, seeds, and flax seeds do nothing to my blood sugar. They taste great. I dip them in guacamole and hummus. I get a zero glucose spike. Go over there and grab some Triscuits. Giant spike in terms of across the population data. And I think some people might think like, oh, that seems like a maybe a healthy choice, some whole grains. But like when you look at population level data, you can see like across a group of large group of people, we're actually seeing really large glucose spikes, which we know are not good for our health. We'll often crash after a glucose spike and feel tired and have cravings. And so we want to keep that glucose more stable. And then the one that just like, I just, you know, 
I think is fascinating is this is breakfast food. And we talked about this a little bit on the last episode of what kind of constitutes a good or a bad breakfast based on glucose data. But I just continually am blown away what we're seeing with cereals because almost universally standard cereals in the grocery store are causing some of the biggest glucose spikes in our entire data set and actually larger than a lot of candy bars. Um, So like at this point, like I'd rather eat a Snickers bar than eat Honey Nut Cheerios because it's going to taste better and I'm going to have a lower glucose spike and I'm going to get some protein in there at least, you know? And so you have Honey Nut Cheerios and Cheerios saying lowers cholesterol, good for heart, heart healthy. And we're seeing spikes, you know, above 50 milligrams per deciliter with people eating a standard serving of this. And so what we've seen is that like even cereals like Raisin Bran, which I think a lot of people, they're making a healthy choice. They probably think they're sacrificing if they're eating Raisin Bran well above a 40 milligram per deciliter spike. Lucky Charms, Honey Nut Cheerios, regular Cheerios, Life Cereal, all above 40 milligrams per deciliter. And for context, I'm trying to not really go above like 20 milligrams per deciliter from the beginning to the end of a meal. I want to keep things much more of those gentle rolling hills and not big ups and downs. And there are going to be people who listen to this and who write in the comments and say, oh, 40, 50 milligrams per deciliter, that's no problem. Our body's designed to handle this. That is not true. Our body is not designed to handle 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 point spikes several times per day from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night, where our body's constantly having to produce insulin to bring that down. That's glycemic variability is not what we want for optimal health. One spike here and there, your body can handle it. Doing this constantly day in and day out from six months of age to when we're 75, not the best strategy. Serial killers, you know, it's so crazy. It's so crazy to, you know, again, we, we, we know this conceptually, right? And we can see the sugar content there on the boxes, but yet to actually see the data and to see it across the board, like you mentioned, you got 200 million plus data points now. This is so, what's so remarkable about levels is that's getting fed into this database so that we can start to see these patterns in our society. And to know that cereal is like messing people up more so than the average candy bar is just like that's bananas. And if you think about this, you know, again, this, this was probably my favorite thing, you know, growing up was the cereal, like Saturday morning cartoons, a big bowl of, you know, uh, fruity pebbles if we had money or it would be the off-brand stuff. Um, you know, instead of tricks, we had fruit dots, you know? And, um, but anyways, that was like a whole vibe. And also because again, like it's a, flavor explosion and there's nothing there is literally not a single natural aspect of that meal anymore it's just been completely denatured you know there's there you can't tell where this food came from you know even if you think about raisin bran like two scoops of raisins i remember that being framed as that healthy thing right it's got bran in the name raisin bran that is so much sugar it's absurd even the raisins themselves you know again like we few raisins maybe in some you know some trail mix whatever but if we're talking about number one they've got sh- sugar dusted raisins of course and the brand the the flakes and the raisins and you add all that stuff together oh my gosh you got a serious problem there but it's framed as healthy and i love that you mentioned this heart healthy label 
that they were able to kind of manipulate to throw on these cereal boxes lowers cholesterol, right? That's the framing. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's absurd. But this shows the influence that food manufacturers have over policy, you know, literally government regulation, government policy, and the, the ability to manipulate marketing, manipulate the minds of customers. So man, thank you so much for sharing that information because it's just, it's an affirmation for what we already know. Not to say this is, this is the, this is the sidebar here with the Model Health Show, of course. If you want to have that bowl of crunch berries, so be it. You know, this is not about judgment. This is about education. Do you, but let's stack conditions in our favor. The same thing goes back to our personal care items. You know, if you are, you know, you've become aware of this now and you're using a much more natural, you know, uh, moisturizer. So maybe it's coconut oil and you're using, you know, um, shaving cream that doesn't have a bunch of toxins in it. But you decide, you know what? This so-called natural deodorant has me out here smelling like a whole fish walking around here, you know, a fish on wheels. So be it. If you need to up, you know, use one that has a little bit more of the nefarious items in there, you know, to regulate that. So be it. You know, it's stacking conditions and adjusting for what fits for you. Right? And I love that about your message as well, because it's not just like, oh, these things are off limits. It's like, let's stack conditions in our favor. Exactly right. And build the body such that it can respond to these things. And, you know, if you're going to have that Fruity Pebbles bowl, which like might be a huge source of enjoyment for you, take a walk afterwards, potentially, or have some apple cider vinegar beforehand. Like there are other things you can do as well to set your body up for success to process that that glucose load add a bunch of chia seeds on top of it to add fiber so that you absorb it more slowly. There's all these tools in our toolbox that we can use. Um, this is, like you said, it's not about deprivation. It's not about shame. It's about awareness and, and learning all these things you can do to just minimize the collateral damage on our body from choices we make that might make us really, really happy, but that might have some externalities, but we can mitigate those externalities if we have the awareness in the toolbox to do so. I love hanging out with you. It's so fun. And I always walk away with some new insights. Can you let everybody know where they can connect with you, learn more about what you're doing? The, the Levels blog is amazing. Can you share that with everybody? Yes, absolutely. Um, so at Levels on Instagram and Twitter, and we are at levelshealth.com. And you shared the code for how people can get access, levels.link slash model. Levelshealth.com slash blog is an amazing resource that actually has tons of articles on every single thing we've talked about today. So if you want to dig more into micronutrients, obesogens, the impact of sunlight on metabolic health, insights from our data set, the relationship between sexual health and metabolic health, there's more there. And these are highly researched articles. Um, our advisory board weighs in on them lots of great resources and then tips about what to do. I'm personally at Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Instagram and Twitter, Dr. Casey's Kitchen. And uh, yeah, that's how to find us. Awesome. Casey, this is amazing. We've covered so much ground here. We've talked about sunlight to sex to cereal. And this was just such a juicy, amazing conversation. And I just appreciate you so much. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much, Sean. Awesome. Everybody, Dr. Casey Means. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. This is just stacking 
layer after layer on the connection between our metabolic health in all aspects of our lives, from our cardiovascular system to our reproductive system to our cognitive performance. There isn't a single aspect of our biology that isn't impacted by the health of our metabolism. They are all integrated. And this is a call to arms for us to get educated on making ourselves more resilient and improving our metabolic health. A remarkable tool that we have access to today for real-world, real-time feedback is a continuous glucose monitor. This is one of those self-quantification tools that emphasizes self because you are different from everyone else. And you can find out how different foods impact you versus someone else. Your sleep quality, how does that affect your blood sugar management through the day? The list goes on and on on the data points that you can get from something like Levels. Again, go to levels.link forward slash model to get exclusive access to the Levels Continuous Glucose Monitor. Again, that's L-E-V-E-L-S dot link forward slash model and get access today. We've got some incredible masterclasses and some epic guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.